everyone <laughs> and welcome to the 34th edition of Data Bytes, Getting Things Done with Data in Government. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government and it's wonderful to welcome so many of you this evening. I trust you all had pleasant taxi journeys from your North London townhouses. <laughs> Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. Hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. I hope you're all very excited about tonight's event. <laughs> Let's start with the usual housekeeping. Tonight's event is on the record and we are being live streamed, obviously. For those of you on social media, it's hashtag IFGDataBytes and we are live tweeting from at IFG events. If you're here in the building, the Wi-Fi is IFG Internet Hotspot, password Institute123, all lowercase. And as ever, I'll be putting your questions to our speakers. If you're watching online, use the Slido page you're almost certainly already on. If not, go to bit.ly slash slidodb34. If you're here at the IFG, you can, of course, raise your hand. Why does the IFG organize Databytes? Well, we aim to bring together the various different data communities in and around government to show everyone, including those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve in practice, and to put interesting data projects on the record so we can all learn from them. How does Databytes work? Well, you're going to see four presentations about data this evening. Each presentation will last for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a Databyte. The presenters will then face questions for eight minutes. Yes, just eight minutes. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by questions for eight minutes. This is our 34th Databytes. You can watch the previous 33, including last month's fabulous foursome, on the IFG website. So what's happened since we last met? Well, there's been a lot of politics, and we'll come to that. But of course, the big news of the month was a truly historic event, the end of an era, a reign of extraordinary longevity and some truly mind-boggling statistics. Not King Roger, of course, but Queen Elizabeth II, who passed away the day after last month's databytes. Now, we don't have this chart type at Databytes often, so you could say we're growing the pies. But as you can see, Queen Elizabeth's reign accounts for 7% of all reigns since 1066, when British history was invented. She was served by 15 prime ministers, from Winston Churchill to Liz Truss. Churchill was born in 1874, Truss in 1975. And if we look at their lifespans, we can see that Churchill takes us back firmly into Victorian times in the political age of Disraeli and Gladstone. The accession council of King Charles III was strange to most of us for many reasons, but largely because very few people can remember the previous one. Churchill, on the other hand, was in Parliament for five changes of monarch. And if we look at all of the prime ministers during the Queen's life, rather than just her reign, we get all the way back to Stanley Baldwin. Look at that political instability in the 1930s. Imagine having four different prime ministers in just six and a half years. 
The Queen's reign also saw seven popes, 14 US presidents, 11 French presidents, 10 German chancellors from Adenauer to Schultz, 11 leaders of Russia from Stalin to Putin, and just six Chinese supreme leaders from Mao Tse. As we know, she reigned over 15 prime ministers, but also 24 chancellors, a whopping 43 housing ministers. <laughs> The creation of the Scottish Parliament and six First Ministers are acting First Ministers. The creation of the Welsh Senate and four First Ministers. Um, then we've got six First Ministers and acting First Ministers across rather a lot of terms and five Deputy First Ministers of Northern Ireland. 14 Conservative leaders, 16 Labour leaders, four Liberal, three SDP and 12 Lib Dem leaders, eight SNP leaders, six Plaid Cymru leaders and 17 leaders of UKIP. <laughs> Though, to be fair, anyone born before the 1st of July 1997 has lived through 17 leaders of UKIP. Of course, UKIP leader is not the only office with high turnover. In recent years, the Prime Minister has been first among equals. Just 29 days into her term, there are already rumours swirling about Liz Truss's future. She's some way off the next post-war Prime Minister, though has overtaken Lord Bath's two days, Earl Waldegrave's four days, and Wellington's 25-day caretaker ministry. Next up are Rockingham's 96-day second term and Canning's 119 days. The Chancellor has also come under the spotlight. Kwasi Kwarteng is currently just six days away from overtaking Ian MacLeod, the shortest-serving post-war Chancellor and one of only five post-war Cabinet Ministers to die in office. It's striking that two of the other shortest-serving, Javid and Zahawi, have come in the last few years. Kwarteng is the fourth Chancellor in three years. It hasn't been the best of months for his number two, Chief Secretary Chris Philp, either. On the day of the mini-fiscal definitely not a budget event, Philp happily tweeted a chart of the pound's performance against the dollar when it looked like this. Unfortunately, a few hours later, it looked like that. As one of my colleagues remarked, recent Tory administrations seem to be defined by straight lines on charts, like this one, or most recently, this one. That poll, though, was not the most earth-shattering of the week. There was another on a subject that has riven the Institute for Government staff in a way not seen since debates about how to pronounce Mahoka Logo and DLUC, whether one should capitalise Parliament in reports, or whether getting a Commons majority but not the necessary two-thirds Commons majority on a motion under the Fixed-Term Parliaments Act for an early election counts as a government defeat or not. No, this great question of our age, one which really takes the biscuit, is, is the chocolate on a di chocolate digestive on the top or on the bottom? Now, this was published while I was hobnobbing at party conference. You'll see that most people polled did indeed go for the right answer, that the chocolate is on the top, a thumping majority rather than a wafer-thin one. Sorry to the 13%, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. Now, I know it's a small number, but nonetheless, so many people being so wrong. That is a disgrace. Crumbs. Turning to tonight, our first speaker joining us virtually will be Dr. Mark Thompson, Director at Cabinet Office for Government Business Services, on how the organisation is utilising data insights to transform the civil service. Then we'll hear from another virtual speaker, Catherine Hope, statistician at the Department for Work and Pensions and chair of the presentation group at the Government Statistical Service on the GSS's new dashboards guidance. Here in the building, we have Paul Maltby, Chief Digital Officer, who presented our very first data bytes, and Paul Downey, Head of Digital Land at DLUC on planning.data.gov.uk and a digital perspective on planning reform. 
And our final speaker of the evening, also virtual, is Alex Bobrovska, data scientist at the Department for Work and Pensions, who presented at Databytes 2 on getting the right ecosystem in place for embedding analytics in a service design and build context. We'll be back on Tuesday, the 1st of November, and then Wednesday, the 7th of December. Now, we need sponsors to keep Databytes going. You'll note we don't have one tonight, so if you'd like to make sure that Databytes continues, get in touch with my colleague, Pratesh. And if you're in government and would like to present or know someone who should, then please get in touch with me. That's more than enough from me. We're going to go to our first speaker now, and that's joining us virtually. That's going to be Mark. Hello. Uh, Gavin, thank you for inviting me to speak today. I'm sorry I can't be with you at the Institute, but it's uh, really great to be able to join you virtually. Um, it was, I think, four years ago that you supported the launch of a new organisation then called Government Shared Services. And I recall we were discussing the future of work and how we could drive further opportunities from shared services. Well, it certainly provided some food for thought for me, uh, and I'd like to spend um, a few minutes taking you through some of the ways that the Cabinet Office is moving that forward, using data insights to drive some of those opportunities to transform the civil service. My name is Mark Thompson. I'm the Director of Government Business Services. It's a business unit that sits within the Cabinet Office that encompasses now the delivery of the shared service strategy, the in-house government recruitment service, pensions, operation, operation of the common civil service platforms and um, civil service modernization work. Firstly, though, I'd like to give you an abridged version of progress being made across the government around shared services. In 2013, the first two shared service centres were created ICC1 out of the Department of Transport in Swansea, and ICC2 created from DWP, DAFRA and MOJ shared service operations. And we now that, know that now as SSCL. In 2021, following the Lord Maud review, the government decided to move forward with the creation of five clusters, which are now very much underway. Um, we have the Synergy cluster, which is taking ICC2 to the next generation. Um, HMRC takes ICC1 to the next generation with Department of Transport and DLUC. Overseas, Defence, and finally the Matrix, which is a consortium of the smaller policy departments led by Bayes. Each cluster is self-governing, operating in a single service delivery organisation and consolidated cloud ERP platform. Overseas and Defence are already live with their new platforms and Synergy, Matrix and HMRC are advancing on their plans. In addition to the five clusters, a number of other shared service arrangements are in operation. The largest is the Civil Service and Royal Mail Pension Schemes, which pay out around eight billion a year. Also the Government Recruitment Service, which advertises over 100% well, of all jobs, and does 70% of all civil service recruitment. I think last year we handled well over a million job applications. Of course, government is complex. And this is a simplified version of that system. It's our civil service interoperability landscape. You can see the five clusters in the middle, centralised recruitment service towards the top, and in fact, a number of other central services. So by looking at the system as a whole, we have an opportunity to make the civil service operate more coherently, that is to make it more interoperable. That is, make it easier for civil servants to collaborate and be redirected towards government priorities seamlessly, uh, driving both efficiency and effectiveness. One way to make it more interoperable is to make it easier to collaborate across boundaries. So standardised email, video conferencing, document tooling, etc. 
but also to make it easier to move between buildings through a new digital government pass. And of course, once you're in that building, work on standardised Wi-Fi, Gov Wi-Fi. Work is also underway to connect these systems up to allow data to flow more seamlessly between the cluster platforms and the centralised systems. And you can see here in the middle, the big blue bar, uh, the integration hub that we're currently building, which will be used to orchestrate those data flows. One example being developed is to make it easier to move civil servants between organisations. Um, so typically 30,000 transfers take place every year and moving between one payroll system and another is complicated by handoffs, generating delays and in some cases pay issues. As part of this work, extensive user research was carried out to understand where the pain points are, uh, which has included the quantification of satisfaction levels. Uh, we've collated some of that data onto this slide to give you a flavour. The current manual form, which is emailed between the candidate, old employer, new employer, shared service provider and so on, is currently being digitised and we hope to have that live in the spring of next year in private beta. To make it easy to manage data flows, we need common standards and the first set of 60 core data standards were published earlier in the year around finance, HR, commercial property and security, uh, which will be adopted in all shared service platforms. And we've also done work to standardise the Microsoft configuration. An important one is the central employee identifier, which will enable us to enjoy and join up employee data sets. But we need some way to bring that data together. Um, so GBS went and built a data lake. We call it GRID. Um, GRID has combined data sets from a range of sources, such as recruitment, learning and skills. It's broken down by location, diversity, job type, grade, et cetera, et cetera. It also shows key performance data. So providing a unified view of both the workforce and workforce supporting services. Here's an example snapshot of the dashboard now being used by leaders across the civil service. Whilst primarily showing static data, which is useful for tracking progress against key objectives, such as diversity rates or against the government's places for growth agenda, it's also going to provide the basis of a new strategic workforce planning capability for the civil service, enabling analytical insights so we can start to answer specific cross-cutting questions such as where are the largest skills gaps? Uh, so with the tooling in place, um, it's now possible to develop those insights to drive user improvements and to fix system-wide problems. We've listed three here, but I'm going to finish by talking about skills transformation. On skills, I think it was the IFG in there finding the right skills for the civil service report last year, which said that the civil service had poor data on the specialist in-house skills we have that consistent information is lacking and different data collection systems across departments mean that we do not know enough about the makeup of the workforce or how to deploy it. Ow! So in response to this, GBS has been working on a skills profile to capture the skills data of all civil servants. But in advance of that data source, which will take a little more time to build, the GBS Data and Insights team have, in conjunction with the number 10 data science team, been using Google's open source cloud AI platform and its natural language processing capabilities to mine our vast repository of civil service job adverts. And so by looking at over 206,000 job adverts collated over two years across 179 organisations, uh, we've used this to generate a probabilistic spatial representation of the skill makeup of the civil service, which we've represented here as dots. So this slide's a visual demonstration of how skills in civil service jobs have been grouped following an analysis. Each point's an individual skill. Similar skills are grouped together. 
for example, statistical analysis and data visualization. These two skills are often found in job descriptions together. They are specialists, so they have little overlap with other specialist skills in different domains, e.g. trade negotiations. Other skills, like time management, are clustered into a different group near the centre, meaning they have a lot of overlap with other skills. Many job adverts include specialist skills along with more general skills. I should credit Nesta as this analysis was adapted from their work. So we anticipate this will allow multiple use cases. The skills taxonomy is going to be used to provide the structure for our new skills profile and the aggregate data will help to inform strategic planning around skills development needs as we move forward. However, I see I'm out of time, but I hope that's provided you a flavour, Gavin, of how GBS is utilising data insights to drive some system-wide improvements and some of the great work that's actually going on across the civil service. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Mark. almost bang on time and hopefully we'll be able to see Mark very shortly. In the meantime, if you are watching us online, first apologies if you had any technical difficulty during that presentation. Uh, we will make the slides available afterwards as well. Um, and remember, if you would like to put your question to Mark, uh, you're probably already on the Slido page, but you can also go to bit.ly slash slidodb34. I'm going to come to the room uh, for the first batch of questions. So do wait for the microphone to come to you. Do tell us who you are, if you can. And remember, we are on the record. So who would like to ask the first question of Mark? Otherwise, I'm going to go online to get one. But we'll come to the, just wait for the microphone. Hi, Craig Yandel from Salesforce. Um, really interesting to hear what you're um, using your data insights for, but one of my questions is around um, how are you ensuring that all of your investment in the work you're doing um, allows you to kind of make that, those assets available um, for reuse across other parts of government? Okay, well, that is the challenge. We um, often look at whether we are going to build something or buy something. Uh, and when we go about buying things, we generally will look at uh, how we can get the best value. So, you know, we look close to home in terms of the cabinet office estate and what's uh, used there. And we're definitely leveraging uh, that in various places. I think potentially even in Salesforce, um, I think. And we've got a number of use cases there. Um, and likewise, across government, obviously, when we when we build these things or are looking at these things, we see quite a few cases where we found 22 different instances across 22 different departments. So uh, there's definitely a commercial uh, opportunity there as well. Thanks. Uh, I think we've got a question in this just just there. James Kidner from Rebellion Defence. Um, interesting presentation, Mark, and thank you. Um, my question is about what we're doing to look at how other governments are doing this around the world and what we can learn from their expertise in this field. Who are the sort of front runners and who are the back markers in this race? Uh, well, the Singapore government is quite often held up as, uh, as an example uh, by, um, by ministers and others, and it's definitely been the inspiration for some of the investment that's been going on around uh, skills and uh, learning there. So uh, we've just uh, released a, a government campus front end to the learning system that's available to 580,000 people. And that was inspired by uh, the Singapore government. But in addition, we've, we've got relationships with the Australians, uh, the Lithuanian government and Estonia, of course, who are uh, quite interesting in this space. Mm -hmm. 
Excellent, thank you. I'm going to go online for the next one. Uh, this is from Anonymous. Good evening to you, Anonymous, who was so keen they lodged this question 20 minutes before the start of the event. Um, they note um, that there was an announcement at Conservative Party conference about a possible new uh, British data protection scheme replacing GDPR. And I know those of us in data world are trying to work out if that's different from the data protection bill that's coming through or something completely different. Um, but their question is, given that announcement, how do you envisage the impact of that um, on government information? I suppose your work, given the sort of data that you're handling. Yeah, obviously we take um, GDPR very seriously. Um, it's good practice anyway, regardless of the legislation, to protect uh, data and treat it with respect. So, uh, you know, it's taken a few years to to get up to standard, but we definitely apply that. I have no insight into what those new standards would be, but I imagine the same principles will largely apply. Obviously, in government, we'd like to get hold of other government data more quickly uh, without necessarily negotiating some of that. So maybe there'll be an opportunity for us to move a bit quicker on bringing those data sets together. Excellent, thanks. Uh, let's come back into the room for the next question. I think they've all been men or anonymous so far, so a bit of variety would be great. Okay, otherwise you're gonna force me to ask a question. Nobody wants that. <laughs> We've got one down at the front here. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Sean Sanyal, BASE. Um, so I was wondering, with the launch of CS25, um, we are going to expect, uh, at least the government wants, a reduction in headcount. So that means more civil servants working across departments or at least collaborating with each other to a greater extent. And so what's being done in that space to facilitate, say, file transfer or easier access, working on the same SharePoint directory or something like that? Yeah, well, it's a good question because that is essentially the inspiration for a lot of this interoperability work. Uh, we noted with Brexit uh, where we, uh, and latterly with COVID uh, that we've had to redeploy uh, people at speed across the system. I know I released our original data team to the NHS and other statisticians to do some of that analysis work. Um, and that is just the way we're going to, that's the way of the world, that's the way the government wants to work and it will conveniently support overall, um, you know, prioritisation of work. What we're trying to do is build those tools to make it easier to move people around. That's partly why we've, um, CDDO and others have been working on the infrastructure around email and collaborative tools so you can share documents. Um, and that's why when transfers are more permanent, we're, we're trying to automate that and make that more seamless. But really, the value we're trying to do is use the skills data and the data that we have across the workforce to actually pinpoint those skills. And I didn't mention it today, but we're working on a communication tool that will allow us to direct individuals that have particular skills towards particular priorities. Uh, previously, with Brexit and COVID, it required the standing up of uh, resourcing hubs, quite tedious spreadsheet exchanges and manual manipulation, but we're trying to automate that. So we're hoping that that will drive that efficiency. I mean, the other part of the agenda is make sure we invest in people and skill up. So um, there's two parts of it, a smaller civil service, but hopefully one that's more highly skilled, more targetable towards the priorities. Excellent, thank you. Um, I've got another question from Anonymous uh, online, which is, what do individual civil servants think of so much data about them being put in your data lake? 
Well, at the moment, the data that we have in the data lake is um, aggregate data. Uh, it's not personally identifiable. Um, and it's actually data that's collected by the um, ONS and others as part of um, standard commissions. Um, so we're just essentially automating those data sets. Um, I've, obviously, to have deep value, we will need to be able to join those data sets up um, and we'll use the central employee ID to do that. We can do that anonymously. Um, so there will be controls around that. We're not intending to have a database with everyone's name in that we can start hunting what their pay is and et cetera, et cetera. But there is value in moving towards that. Great, thank you. Uh, let's come back to the room for the next question. Hands up if you'd like to ask Mark something. Um, we'll go to the gentleman just behind first and I'll come back to you for the next question. I think we, if we're quick, we've got time to get both in. Hi, Patrick King from CGI. Um, we've been working on this sort of thing inside our corporation for over 100,000 employees and the biggest challenge we had wasn't technical but actually encouraging people to keep their data up to date. Perhaps you can explain how that might happen for your guys. Yeah, good challenge. Um, so the core data sets are within the clusters, within the ERP platforms, and obviously there's an incentive for, for a certain amount of that information to be kept up to date because it informs their payroll. Um, so that part is always a challenge, but that's the core set. Um, in, in terms of why anyone would want to augment that with their learn, their skills data and other and other pieces of information, um, we've got to make it attractive to use and provide some incentives to encourage that. So um, if it is a means for you to be offered uh, interesting opportunities, that might be you know one one example of why you would want to add to the data set. Um, Brilliant. Uh, let's squeeze in a final quick question. <laughs> from DEFRA. In terms of creating uh, more centralization in data warehouse, and uh, sorry, the data lake, do you anticipate that the level of service provision will be in, more in-sourced or more outsourced or roughly stay the same? Well, in terms of the actual data um, tooling, um, the idea is to democratize the data. So it's being made uh, available back to um, departments basically um to to access we're not trying to uh centralize all the data analysis around that we're trying to complement the work that's going on in departments and in the clusters because you know work a good workforce data um work strategic workforce management activities take place within those organizations so we're just trying to find a way of democratizing the bits that are sensible to share uh, whilst leaving innovative thought and, and development within the, the organisations. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you very much indeed for getting us off to a great start this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to stay online for our next speaker, and that's Catherine. Catherine, this is, uh, this is London calling. Can you hear us? Hi, yes. Can you hear me? And indeed, loud and clear. Excellent. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, thanks, Gavin. I'm Catherine Hope, and I'm going to talk to you about our new um, dashboard guidance. So the presentation uh, champions network is a group of people across government who are interested in presenting data to tell a story um, and help people understand what's happening across a myriad of policy areas in government. 
And as head of the presentation's champion network, I carried out an investigation into what we as statisticians have learned over the COVID-19 period in terms of presenting data. So what's gone well? Uh, what did we keep doing? Maybe what did we stop doing? And one strong theme that came across from all departments was dashboards. People may be using them for the first time. Uh, as a good way of remotely updating stakeholders with some fast-moving requirements and certainly lots of new data sources becoming available. But what do we mean by a dashboard? Our ideas of dashboards can range from a simple Power BI page maybe that gives our colleagues some monthly metrics, vanity metrics even, um, up to a daily update of critical data that gets millions of hits from around the world each month. And there's no real agreement on the definition of exactly what a dashboard is, which isn't very helpful. But what they definitely are is an interactive digital service that presents data. And the government statistical service had previously written some tips about how to design dashboards but this assumed that a dashboard was the right way to present our data. So although we don't always necessarily agree with um, Helen on uh, Twitter here, you can see that she got quite a lot of um, interaction for this tweet. Um, and hopefully what the guidance is, is giving people is a bit of background into, well, how do I decide if I do want a dashboard? So uh, I enlisted the help of some people very well versed in creating dashboards. Um, to write a bit of extra guidance. So what will you need to consider before getting in the car, starting the engine and lighting up the dashboard? Um, and I'm not even sorry for that very obvious and dreadful analogy. So this is the new guidance. Um, yeah, we wanted to help our producers to understand the scope of the new thing that they're taking on. It's almost too easy to create a dashboard these days, but there's lots of things to think about and lots of potential implications for yourselves and people outside of your team. So you can find the guidance on the new analysis function website that's taking over from the GSS website this month. If you go into the guidance hub where there's a link at the top, um, just search for dashboards and you'll find this. And it is aimed at statisticians and um, primarily for thinking about the public use of dashboards, but it will all still apply to internal interactive data releases as well. So I'm going to pick out just a few sections uh, to talk about today. Interestingly, um, last week, the Civil Service World magazine um, featured the COVID-19 dashboard uh, with questions asked for by, uh, sorry, to Claire Griffiths, who was one of the people that I turned to for help. Um, and she was the team leader for the COVID-19 dashboard. And their questions overlap really nicely with my favourite areas. So I'm going to use their questions to um, talk through the, the guidance. So where does all of this data come from anyway? Think about your data sources. How is your data collected? How often is it updated? How much is there? What's the quality like? And where will you put the metadata? Think about balancing the frequency of that data release with the amount of data you've got because the amount of time, um, energy, money it will take to design, test, build and run that digital service could be really big. And it might be more efficient to release a spreadsheet on a regular basis, maybe on data.gov.uk, or just have a weekly phone call with a colleague. 
and they asked her, what does your team look like? And statisticians aren't digital service experts. Um, the DDAT technology, the, sorry, the DDAT roles, which is digital data and technology, um, they're all really important in designing a website, which is what a, da a dashboard is. Um, so we really need to get input from, of course, from analysts, but from user researchers, content designers, service designers, interaction designers, comms professionals, accessibility experts, data viz experts, and data architects. So you really will need a multidisciplinary team. She was asked about user research, and that isn't something that statisticians have necessarily been involved with that much in the past, but we have always had our users' needs in mind when we present data. We often think about whether charts or tables would be better for these particular users, and what level of detail to add, what context, what kind of policy knowledge are our users already have. And that's the same for dashboards. And just pointing out that last point again, you may not need a dashboard. You may, but you may not. Uh, Claire talked about the, the code of practice. So although the statistics um, on the COVID-19 dashboard weren't um, officially marked as, uh, as national stats, um, she did follow the, um, the pillars of the statistics code of practice, which are trustworthiness, quality and value. And of course, there's also the web content accessibility guidelines or WCAG guidelines to factor into our online services, whether they're internal or external. And uh, that means our digital services should be perceivable, understandable, operable and robust. And there's whole teams of, uh, of people, whole job roles dedicated to online accessibility. It's not a simple fix for dashboards, and there's not a general list of things that we can do to make our dashboards accessible, because context is really important. The analysis function website does have some uh, advice already about making data visualizations accessible, so do search for that. It's not easy, but it's essential. But Claire was asked about, um, I guess, the pressure um, that her team uh, were under. And for her timeliness is such a big challenge. They're literally working on, on the dashboard all day, every day. So I doubt that your dashboard that you'll need to build will end up being on the telly every night for two years, hopefully not. Um, but the point about staff time and staff pressure is still pertinent. If your data is publicly available, your dashboard will need a live support system in the way that any government digital service does. It's a huge staff undertaking and not necessarily one that your team um, can take on on its own. And finally, what does the future hold? All good things must come to an end. So how will you know when your time has come? What plans do you have for retiring your dashboard in line with the code of practice? We need to plan for all of these uh, eventualities. So there's quite a lot to think about. <laughs> Um, and that was just a, a flavour of um, parts of the, the guidance. Um, and a simple request from a stakeholder for a dashboard can have so many implications. And that's what our guidance is trying to help you think through. First of all, ask that person, what do they really mean? What are they going to use this data for? And then pause to think about uh, all of those things before you agree to creating a dashboard. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Catherine. For those of you inter interested in the code of practice, which uh, Catherine mentioned, Ed Humpherson, the Director General for Statistics Regulation, talked about exactly that at Databytes a few months ago. So do check that out on our website. Uh, just a reminder, if you're watching us online, you can ask questions via Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb34 if you're not there already. Uh, Catherine, very nice. We can now see you in the room. Um, well, just as I say that, you disappear again. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, great to see you, and thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go to the room uh, for the first question. Now, dashboards are a very popular topic at the moment, so uh, who would like to ask the first question of Catherine this evening? Back row there. Um, Ollie Clifton Moore from Department of Education. Um, I saw a much of a howl of pain as much as a question, but uh, as an analyst in government, I constantly get asked for a dashboard when a dashboard is not required. So I'm a little bit on Helen's side in that respect. Um, any tips to uh, encourage our colleagues to not default to the dashboard? Yes, I think that question of what do they really mean is is important because the word dashboard just means so many things to so many different people. Um, so I would ask them to describe what it is they want and why they want it, how they're going to use it. And it, it can often be a request from very senior staff who clearly don't have time to sit and go through the data and to understand it. So dashboards are a, an exploratory way of presenting data. And there's probably going to be somebody else, it might even be you, sat there doing that exploring so that they can then, then do the explaining and the storytelling. Um, so I think the first thing I would I would do is say, what do you need it for? What do you think it looks like? And then hopefully the guidance will be able to talk you through some other things that will help you say no. So good luck with saying no. Thank you. We've got a, a, a slightly different spin on a similar question from Tom King online. Good evening to you, Tom. If you advise people not to create a dashboard, what support do you offer them to think about the alternatives? Um. Hopefully that guidance will will help, but um, but certainly the the presentation champions network. Um, there's also like a um, a sibling uh, committee, which is the um, presentation and dissemination uh, dissemination network, and they think about other ways of presenting data, um, maybe through gov.uk or as I mentioned, data.gov.uk, or even just producing um, and and releasing spreadsheets. Uh, so I would get in touch with one of those groups um, and we can certainly help you um, think about that and um, yeah, consider your options. So if you search probably for the analysis function um, and then those um, champions networks should appear there. Fantastic. Thank you. Uh, let's come back into the room. Next question for Catherine. I've got one there. Hi, Catherine's Patrick from CGI again. Um, with regard to dashboards, one of the things I've noticed in my career in consulting against the design of these things is that people sometimes don't understand the context of the data that they're trying to track. For example, in the analog world, a car dashboard, the speedometer is useless unless you understand the speed limits that you're trying to actually track. So likewise, in business or any other activity, how can we advise people to design dashboards or whatever analytics tool you want to use to actually get meaningful information they can actually make business decisions or track outcomes on? 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point because yeah, otherwise they're just vanity metrics or they're numbers that people don't understand and therefore won't use. And then you've built this amazing thing that, that yeah, nobody actually logs into. Um, so I would have a think about the targets or the limits, the sort of acceptable limits um, that you have. Uh, maybe there's tolerances to, I don't know, acceptance rates um, and present those as well. So um, some kind of bullet charts or maybe even um, uh, what's the, the, like the trumpet of uncertainty. You know, you could show what the range should be and, and whether you're falling in, in or outside of, of that. And of course, the metadata itself is really important. So explaining how this data is is collected and what that means. And if you can add context to single data points, uh, it's slightly harder on an interactive dashboard, certainly, but um, adding that context that says you know, something happened here and that's why this measure drops um, can really help that the understanding and, uh, as you say, the context. Thanks. I'm going to go online for the next few questions. Uh, Sam from Med Confidential, evening to you, Sam, says NHS England uh, wishes to spend £360 million on Palantir as they really want lots of dashboards, but can't describe what it is they want or how they'll use it. How big was the budget for your project and do you have any advice for NHS England? Ooh, um, certainly never actually <laughs> built a dashboard of that scale before. Um, I would be interested to, to know what the COVID-19 um, dashboard um, budget has been. Um, so I yeah, haven't, haven't got uh, any figures to hand. Um, I think it, it's so difficult if people don't know what they want or why they want it. I, I certainly heard of a, a department recently who was there. One of their ministers said, we want a dashboard like the COVID-19 dashboard. Yeah, oh, right, great. Why? Uh, and it, it's because they want one. And I, I totally understand that. It's really cool. Um, but I would say finding out what they're going to use those dashboards for, what decisions are they going to make, um, uh, and help them to think about that. You know, what... What blue sky thinking could they do? Um, how much faster could those decisions be made? So not necessarily putting them off, um, but helping them to understand what what they could leverage out of that data. Excellent, thanks. Um, the next question picks up on some of those themes as well. This is from Craig at the GLA. Good evening to you. How do you convince your senior stakeholders that dashboards deserve the same attention to user needs as other public digital services when analytics and user research and design teams often sit in very different parts of the organisation? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I certainly don't have the, uh, the, the exact answer for it because it's something that we, we do all struggle with, uh, Craig. Yeah, um, I think... I think it maybe comes down to to explaining how how much of a, a waste of time and money, 360 million potentially, um, it could be if we don't get those user needs right. Uh, maybe maybe try and find a dashboard that isn't used very often in your own um, in your own area. We've all got them. Gosh, I've got hundreds of them. Um, that you create this lovely interactive report and then nobody actually um, uses it, and and that was just such a waste. So I think I would try and focus on um, what if we get it wrong, and and that's sort of similar to any other digital service. What what happens if we get it wrong? What have we wasted? Great, thank you. I'm going to come back in the room. I've got a hand over there, and I'll come to you next. 
James Kidner from Rebellion Defense again. Um, it builds on your answer to that last question, Helen, and, and there is some fancy technology now that can tell you what people are looking at and, and what value they're drawing from it, and how much are you using that to, dare I say, polish up and improve the, the dashboards you're offering? I think that's really important. Yeah, Google Analytics, other, other analytics tools are available, of course, but um, Google's the, um, uh, the ubiquitous one. I think it's just as important to use Google Analytics on data services as it is on, on all government services. Um, and I know that certainly the COVID-19 dashboard team use their Google Analytics um, a lot to refine how they presented their data, sort of in, in what order as well. Um, and the, the kind of information hierarchy is quite important about how you present the order of um, of detail. So I would definitely advise using, um, it's part of my day job actually, using uh, Google Analytics to, to do that, to learn in the same way that you would learn from user research. Great, and with apologies to the excellent questions that were just coming online, I'm gonna take a final question from just there. Uh, hi, Ayla Sali from ServiceNow. Thank you for a very interesting topic of conversation. Um, you've referenced metadata a couple of times, and I was just uh, keen to hear what your thoughts are um, about standardizing the way that we capture and store data across governments and having those robust systems of record that can almost enable us to automate the explo exploitation of the data and um, give opportunities for ready-made dashboards. So first of all, interested to hear your thoughts, and secondly, are we making any headway towards this? Uh, yes, I think I think um, we definitely should, and we definitely are. Um, and standardising data, even across a team, never mind a department or, or the whole of government, can be really difficult. But of course, it's so important to then be able to exploit the data. Um, and the Office of National Statistics have a a program of work called the Integrated Data Platform or program or service, depending on which level you're thinking about. Um, and they're doing exactly that for statistical data um, to, to start off with and being able to gather data from lots of different departments so that we can then join it together, not just sort of standardize it, but join it and tell stories that maybe hadn't been told before because we've got lots of different departments all kind of coming together and, and being presented in the same place. So yeah, the, the IDP is um, definitely something you could go and do a bit of research on. And um, they do have a public beta, I think, service now that's got a couple of departments data in there. Um, so yeah, something to look at there. Brilliant. Thanks, Catherine. We could go for another eight minutes with all of the questions that are coming on in online. Unfortunately, we can't. But thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. And if you want to learn more about the integrated data platform slash service, um, there's a data bytes on that, of course there is. And we've been talking about dashboards a lot recently. Matt touched on it last month. Uh, we had the climate change portal a couple of months ago. And I think last December, uh, we had a few people from the number 10 data science team talking about dashboards across government as well. So plenty to catch up on. Uh, we come to a couple of speakers in the room now, and that's the Pauls. Okay. <coughs> Thank you very much. Um, Right, so uh, hi everyone, I'm Paul Maltby, the Chief Digital Officer at the uh, Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities, at least for a few more uh, weeks before I leave for a new role at Faculty AI. This is Paul Downey, uh, uh, Head of the Digital uh, Land Team 
uh, at DLUC. We're going to talk about how the work we've been doing on, on the digital reform to the planning system, turning it essentially from a semi-analog system to a data-led system. And in particular, we're going to talk about data, uh, sorry, planning.data.gov.uk. Please do go and have a look at that while we're talking. Uh, it's essentially about fixing the data plumbing that underpins the, the, the broader reforms. This is one of those areas, especially with our lovely clientele at the IFG, where I suspect many in the audience will already have quite strong views. Perhaps you've previously tried to get planning permission. Perhaps you found the experience one of uh, uncertain rules, annoying software, long waits. Uh, perhaps you know that you can have your say locally if you can track down and understand the notice posted on the lamppost. And for those who've been working in planning authorities, the experience is often quite frustrating too. In councils we've worked with, we've seen 50% uh, failure rates on even simple applications, wasting time and money that could be spent elsewhere. So we have a fairly clunky and wasteful system in its own right, but at the moment, as we've seen, there's plenty of folks with a strong interest in the UK's growth and productivity agenda and uh, who see planning as, as an important element of that. And we hope that the digital aspects of planning will be part of that story. Um, we've a number of aspects to the forms we're working on. The first is around using modern digital tools to improve the way in which the public can engage with the planning process. So an example on the screen here from uh, Aylesbury Council, it's a relatively simple set of digital tools bringing about a big increase in the numbers and I think critically the range of people engaged in the process. Trust is an important outcome to make the system work better. Uh, we're piloting this with some exciting UK prop tech companies and local authorities and the aim is to make this a normal feature of local democratic life. A second area is around improving the process of um, applying for and approving planning permissions. Uh, of course, planning permissions can already be made online, but it's likely a process of up uh, uploading PDF documents and then these things relatively manually matched against the contents of the local rules, if you can work out what the local rules are. What we're developing is a set of open source software being used by uh, the public now in Lambeth, Southwark and Buckinghamshire and with a number of uh, further councils imminently using digital data and design techniques to reduce errors and costs. And we're starting on this high volume cases such as do you need planning permission that take up such a lot of time, ingesting data about the geographies, the rules, the location of things like protected trees and saving time and hassle for the council uh, officers and applicants alike. Not surprising, this is all independent by data. Paul, more on that from Paul in a moment. But before he does, I just want to flag a couple of things I'm proud of from this work over the last couple of years. The first is I think it's an example, uh, a good example, but too rare an example of government as a platform in the way that uh, Richard talks about it here. I, I share the view that James Plunkett talked about recently where given platforms are the dominant business model of the modern age, it's sort of strange and arguably negligent and dogmatic if public bodies didn't adopt these ways of working, at least in some cases. Yet beyond a few examples, uh, I think, of things like making tax digital, some of the work of DVLA, DBSA. We see and hear very little about the opportunity for this, and I think especially in the wider policy circles, and it feels to me like this is an untapped element of potential growth in the wider digital economy. Um, in this example, we could have kept all the data feeds internal, uh, it would have been arguable to do that, but we've actually exposed these because we want to support that emerging UK prop tech sector who tell us that they want authoritative data as a raw material for the services that they're working on. A second thing I'm proud of is I see this is an all too rare example in Whitehall where the digital and data uh, world has been feeding the strategic policy agenda internally rather than vice versa. So often we, we, we have things dreamed up in policy land and slightly flung over the fence for digital go and build and it's fair to say that not always uh, is our uh, policy world always um, 
uh, as digital as they might be. The full potential of these digital era business models and tools are not always brought to bear on all the challenges we have. I think often also we think of digital government as a, as a shorthand for transactional web services where you give a thing to a citizen and actually the potential is much more than that. So this is example is different and it's been hard fought for to do that. And over to Paul for a bit more on the data side. Thanks, Paul. Um, so we want to create a world of, uh, of, of new digital services. And these services uh, could have the potential to transform people's experience of the planning system. It helps more people sort of know where to build and how to go about building. And it would, might transform the relationships that communities have with development if they could engage with the planning system. The way we do most of those things in the modern world is through digital services. And, but if you want to actually build one of those services, it's actually quite hard at the moment. As Paul was saying, it's a sort of semi-analog system. A lot of things are on paper. But actually also, um, to make a planning application or make a planning decision, you need information from lots of different places. You know, some of it's spread across government, from Natural England, the Environment Agency, Transport, elsewhere. But it's also um, devolved. It's sort of, it's in things like local authorities who make planning decisions, but also um, in development corporations, national parks, uh, and even neighborhoods who do neighborhood planning, depending where you live. And if you actually want to build a service, you have to go and visit all those places and bring data back and sort of turn that into something that your service can use. And quite often you have to uh, FOI information or you have to scrape websites or rekey data out of PDFs or other documents. And then if you actually want to build a service on that, you have to keep all that up to date. That's quite a lot of work. And what we want to do is remove the barriers or lower the barriers of entry to people building interesting services. And so what we came up with was, uh, was a platform. And I think platform's a highfalutin term, but it's sort of, um, it's basically a service where the people we're after are people building services. Can we help them build more services? And once you've done that work, once you've gone out and brought the data together and sort of done some work to make it sort of uh, consistent and available, you can start to do some interesting things with it. And the obvious thing is to put things onto a map. And this is a map that we've made, but the interesting thing about this is we've also showed the plumbing, like how to make your own map. And that's kind of what we're encouraging. Something else to draw your attention to on this map is um, over uh, on the left hand side, there's, there's points, which is the points of historic listed buildings that Historic England maintains. But then there's the outlines, which the local authority does. And this sort of highlights opportunities to bring data together. And then we sort of want to show you how to get the data and, and make the data downloadable, because we want you to build your own maps, to build your own services. And so we make it easy for you to download it and understand like, what the data is and how you can use it. We also provide an API. It's predominantly aimed at those services that Paul was, was calling out in local authorities. Um, but you can build sort of lightweight experiments and, and demonstrations using our API. As long as you don't sort of uh, hit us with too many hits, we'll throttle you. And then the other thing that's sort of advantageous about bringing the data together is you can see your own data of your local authority. And that helps us provide feedback and, and uh, build trust in the data. And so here, for example, is a brownfield portion of brownfield land, the Bristol Channel. You dig into it. Then on the page per thing, the page per brownfield site, we sort of try and link out to other sources. In this case, an authoritative document which defines the site. And that helps us provide feedback and also you know, build trust when things are right and fix things when they're wrong. And this is really where a lot of our work's going now, a lot of our time and energy is working with the providers of the data sort of to give them value from that work that we're expecting them to do. 
and sort of to work with them to co-design you know, good data standards that are minimal, that go with the grain of how they work, and that, but actually have, meet the needs of people building services. And really, this is the, the story of our work now. Beta is just the start. The data's not great, it's not comprehensive, but we're kind of working with more local authorities, working with more data sets and trying to make it work for everybody. Thank you. time. Um, again, a reminder to those of you watching us online, if you'd like to ask a question, please use the Slido. It's bit.ly slash slidodb34. Got a few questions coming in already, uh, but I'm going to come to the room first, and I'll come to you first, and then I'll come to you next. I'm Tom Coates, Office of the Chief Scientific Advisor. Okay. Do you have any measurements around the demographics of people who are accessing planning digitally, um, in contrast to uh, accessing it in a more typical analog way? Um, so at the moment when we say accessing planning, most of the time it's, it's the, we think about the planning application process and the making the decisions um, in that way. And so you can, it, it's all kind of, you could say semi-analog or semi-digital, right? So that, there's, there's a route through that. What we've been doing is working close with, the, with, with a set of councils and increasing numbers at the moment just to track what happens. How do they actually do that? What's the service design behind that? And I think, the, for me, what's astonishing is that failure rate, that, like, at least 50% failure rates for the, just the simple transactions going through. They haven't got a north point on the map mm. or, you know, just simple things that, at the minute, humans are having to add in rather than the system just, you know, we know where north is. We, how, come that's a, how come that's an issue? So um, what we've done is quite a bit of work with the councils on, on just understanding the flow of uh, cases through that and where those points of failure are. Um, very early days on the, the service. I don't know if you're starting to measure that. I mean, we only went on to gov.uk the other day. Didn't we? So I don't have any ready figures, but there's, it's worth saying that the planning system is quite complicated. It's in phases. And one of the things is local plans. People quite often engage in a planning application that they know is on a lamppost. But quite often those things, decisions which led to that planning application were made a long time ago and they weren't aware of it. And so the, it's one of the opportunities the property technology companies we have we're working with companies who sort of uh, working with local authorities where we've, we've funded them um, to actually uh, try and improve yeah. like engagement on local plans or on large sites developments. And those things, the demographic is sort of, is the... the we're starting to get numbers yeah, through on that, aren't we? And, and we're it's just more positive, really different. More yeah, positive reactions and more support for mm. good planning applications rather than just, you know, like, no, not, not here. So uh, it's, I think it's... It's more about more story and more feeling, but it's sort of the opportunities are massive, I think. And the demographics are very different of those yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not just I mean, people who want houses are quite a different demographic to people who, who have houses. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, we had a question down here. Uh, Steph Webb, TPX Impact. Um, there's an awful lot of data uh, in uh, central government and 350-odd uh, uh, local planning authorities uh, that's stuck in PDFs. Uh, for the platform, how did you decide where to start? Oh, uh, well, well th first of all, thanks, Steph. I mean, your work, with, especially with you and at the Future Cities Catapult, was, was really very helpful. You gave us some very good stories and use cases. I mean, where to start? I mean... One of the hard things, when you think from a digital perspective, what you want to do is start small and build up. And it's quite hard because a lot of the, the use cases require national data sets for big things. 
And so what we've done is, uh, as Paul was saying, we've started with like, do you need planning permission as a service with, with this service called Ripper, um, a project which is a few local authorities are now using for real, like a way of triaging whether you need planning applications or not. And those, that, that service only needs a few data sets, it only needs like four key data sets that the local authorities provide. So that means we can work with like a small number of local authorities and a small number of data sets and actually have something which we can learn from and then use that as an exemplar for building out more nationally. And that's, that's really, in essence, how we're co-designing the other data sets. And, that, and that's circular, but I mean, I think too many of us have been involved in, in, in projects in government and outside where, you know, data has been made available, but it's static and it rots, yeah. uh, you know, ages like fish, as they say. And um, uh, for this, it's the use case of the incentive to use it, the feedback loop to the councils, using it within a service and exposing it then in a more trusted way for, for others who can then make something of it. It feels to me that that's a different approach from some that I've seen in the, in the recent past. Brilliant, thank you. I'm gonna go online next. Uh, first of all, Ryan Dunn, evening to you. Ryan says, fabulous stuff from Paul Squared, uh, making things open, making things better. And we've got a question from Anonymous, which is, planning applications to local councils are required to contain the ownership boundaries for the parcel of land. Almost every unregistered parcel of land in England will be in a council planning portal. Does anything help us to get that information? Well, uh, I've done about a specific use case, but um, in general, um, if there's a need and it kind of helps you know, the, make the, the planning system work better, there are some possibilities in, for set data standards. And, and you know, in the past, the, the department has debt, set data standards with various degrees of success. Um, so designing those data standards in a way that works well and meets that, that kind of need is, is part of the journey. Um, yeah, I mean, land ownership is a tricky conundrum in its, in its own right, so I wouldn't dwell on that one particularly. But, uh, but in general, um, setting those standards and sort of making them nationally is one of the things in, that's, that's in, as part of the levelling up and regeneration bill is, is our powers and duties to do that. And mostly they're welcomed by local planning authorities because they find it hard to prioritise making data available unless there's a legal requirement to do it or they see some really strong value from it, like there's a service which, which will help them. Great. Following on from data standards, John Dixon asks online, DLUC land management sounds like a project made with the INSPIRE regulations in mind. Is it? And if not, why not? Well, it, it, INSPIRE regulations, of course, are really important yeah. to drive, uh, have been important to drive a whole load of data, uh, particularly around um, from DEFRA and associated places, so a lot of the environmental data. Uh, on things like, uh, well, what is it, flooding and other, I well, mean, there's a whole load of yeah, there's a whole so load Ramsar of and na natural spaces and ancient woodland, all those things are available because of Inspire. Yeah, yeah they're very but, useful. And, and I think the, 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 the strength of this work is trying to find, yes, it's rooted in the local authorities who are a, a data creator and curator. And what we didn't want to do is something that somehow nationalised that because they we don't know where the protected trees are. They, do, they really do know where the protected trees are. Um, but it provided a thing with as little friction as possible to be able to make that data then usable at a national level. And quite quickly for the use cases uh, driven by the digital services of planning, of development management, of, of making a planning application and decision. But of course, for other use cases to the wider world, you start to realize that you know, just the local authority planning data is not 
it's not useful without the other data around it. So there's always a question of how wide do you draw that because you know you can kind of get uh, what feels like infinite. Um, but bringing those bringing those data sets from other organisations, uh, such as uh, through Tisdefra, isn't it, with the planning mm. uh, with the uh, floods data? But there's yeah. the, as I say the um, historic England for the battle sites, and there's other things that are. Uh, uh, particularly salient for these particular use cases and I think again we're trying to root this not as a generic here's all data sets on everything but here's a particular user need and a service that will uh, that helps us we needed this data anyway to be able to, to improve the, the the planning application services to save local authorities and um, uh, time and, and developers money as they're building uh, and time and costs as they're building houses but the point was there's a secondary use case here, which is the way in which we can expose it to the wider world for other people to build services on. And you know, there's really interesting companies out there that at the moment are spending a lot of money, a big proportion of their small budgets, um, hand wrangling things that mm. the state should just be making available. Yeah. Thanks. Let's squeeze in a very, very quick final question. Anyone in the audience got a quick question for Paul Squared? No. In which case, quick one from me. What ultimately does success look like for all of this work? Just a nice quick question to finish. Well, um, I think it's it's sort of a, it's a long play. So it's, it's I think we're already successful in that we've you know managed to create something, and I think success is sustaining it. You know, in government, it's quite hard to keep things going, and I think if it's got value and it's and it's and it's working. Then it it will you know defend itself and carry on. Yeah. And, and for me, it's the, the it's a long play. But there's also lots of short plays here. Just seeing like mm. today is show and tell with um, uh, a number of the councils involved and seeing the planners from those councils saying this is saving me time. Look at the moment, I have to open yeah. five or six different systems. I have to copy and paste it across or rekey it in and look at the opportunity for errors and just. A simple, you know, in some ways, the, the some of the planning, uh, the rent management software is is very. It's not rocket science stuff, but at the moment, the systems are not enabling a smooth user journey. So for me, you know, reduce cost, reduce hassle, reduce time for people to be able to go through the business of making a successful planning application. Um, that for me is the thing that drives economic growth and efficiency in public services. That's the big picture. Brilliant. Well, Paul and Paul, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. And we're going back online for our final speaker of the evening, and that's Alex. Good evening, Alex. Hello. Hi, Gavin. Hi. Hi, everyone. My name is Alex Bobrovska, and I work in DWP Digital, um, specifically in the Health Transformation Programme, where we are reimagining how we deliver our services to people who need help because of their health condition, disability. Um, as part of that, we are transforming the personal independence payment service and the way we, we deliver health assessments as part of that and other key DWP benefits. And so today I want to tell you about the two types of data science that my data science team works on to support that mission. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what does a data science team, data science team actually do and specifically what my data science team does and how it can be split into two types of work. Um, what are the business needs that drive those two types of work and how we can assure the quality of the work? Um, what are the different processes that need to be followed and what that means for the different data sources, tools and capabilities as well as organizational structures that can support them? And at the end, I'll actually explain to you why it matters to me so much that I came here and I'm doing a talk about it. 
So let's start with what does a data science team do? Well, it's a quite wide umbrella and depending on who you ask or what job advert you read, you might see those terms and probably a bunch more. From my experience, it's a spectrum from analytical skills, such as research, statistics, data viz, to skills used in technical software building, such as in software engineering, ML engineering, DevOps, and MLOps. And so on one side of the spectrum, we have analysis data science, and on the other side, build data science. But is it quite as easy as just drawing a line for the bottom middle of the umbrella? Not quite. So in the health transformation program, data science supports two types of decisions. Analysis data science, so the A type, supports organizational decisions such as policy design, operations management, and service design. Those big chunky decisions are made by humans who consume information best when it tells a story, as I'm sure Catherine can attest to. And so um, our um, output from the analysis data science has to be information that tells a story. On the other hand, the builder data scientists provide transactional support, and that is tailoring the service. So, for example, sending people down different routes based on the information we have, or supporting operational decisions, so granular decisions about a particular person, case, or next step in the service. And so the build output has to be information that supports the service, fits in perfectly within its ecosystem. That's why the uh, the build work is driven by the needs of the program, which designs, builds, and runs the service. It's easy to jump to the conclusion here that analysis uh, data science is project-driven and therefore ad hoc or even one-off, while the transactional support requires fully automated models deployed into production. That's not quite true. For example, in the health transformation program, we are automating the analysis of text user feedback to support service design decisions. And on the other hand, we have also supported operational delivery on an ad hoc basis during the pandemic by compiling details of vulnerable claimants for shielding purposes. It's important to note as well that some organizations or government departments may only need one type of data science. So health transformation program both designs and delivers the services, which is why my team works in both of the data science worlds. How do we assure the quality of our work? Well, um, analysis produces information that tells a story, right? And so for our users to be able to be confident in that story, we need to provide them with a consistent narrative and context, a holistic big picture view to support holistic big picture organizational decisions. Our audience need to be able to relate to the in uh, insight easily in the context in which they make those organizational decisions. So the insight needs to be communicated using a shared language. And decision makers need to immediately see how the information is linked to organizational goals, which in my team we are achieving by the developing a measurement framework. Now, in order to support an organizational, uh, a transactional service, we need less context um, because that's usually provided by this service itself. What we do need more of is a robust mechanism for delivering both data from the service and insight into the service. Not being able to rely on them means a risk to delivering the service itself, which can be really vital to, pe to the people that we serve. We also need to be confident in our understanding of the entire life cycle of the data within the service, the entire ecosystem, which we can achieve by maintaining good data models and other documentation. We also need to ensure that the insight is delivered in the right way, at the right time, to the right person or program within the service. And so the delivery of insight has to be designed, just as any other part of the service is designed. And lastly, we need to be confident that we are not mishandling or misusing anyone's personal data, which in our context can be really sensitive health information, which we achieve by building on a robust ethics framework framework. So what processes do we follow to um, conduct that um, A and B type work? Well, starting on the right-hand side in the build context, um, we are supporting a service and our model needs to fit the data flow of the service. This means that raw data access in, is really non-negotiable. Our model needs to speak the language of the system, both in terms of the input and output it generates. 
Now, on the left-hand side, when doing analysis type data science to support organizational decisions, we need to deliver a holistic big picture view. And so we must use all of the different data sources which help us do that. We don't really need the ability to completely process every single entity within our system, such as uh, we do in the build context. And so our data can be sampled. We can use trial or survey data. We can also use raw service data in the analysis context like we do in build, but we don't really need to. In the end, we'll probably end up modeling in the process of analysis anyway. And so using model data to start with is, is really good for the analysis type. Um, the delivery of insight is different too, and so the tools and practices need, needed are different. Analysis uh, is information that tells a story to humans through reports, dashboards, and data visualizations. While the build model supports a service, and so the data science model cannot just live on its own silo. We need to make sure that we have the tools and practices to deploy its output back into the service. And so uh, we can use different organizational structures and, and practices um, in order to support those processes. In the analysis context, the, our team can be data analyst heavy, although obviously Catherine talked about having user researchers and content designers and so on in your team. That's always recommended. Um, but by having uh, your data science uh, or, or data analyst heavy team means that all of the expertise in data and techniques can be easily shared. Um, those analysts can work with subject matter experts to understand the breadth of information on each analytical data science project and we can have a central data team in which we manage those projects. Now when building models to support the transactional service we need to work very closely with the teams who are designing, building and running the service. That means working in a multidisciplinary team where our connection to other data professionals comes from a community of practice rather than a single data team. Now, as I said, in the health transformation um, program, we need to support both types of data science work. And so we use the hub and spoke model, which is really the best of both worlds. Our central data team provides a home for us to deliver analytical work and share practices. But our data professionals, such as myself, are also embedded in the service design and build teams to support building models into the services. So why does it actually matter? Well, it really matters because hopefully you have all seen that um, A and B type data science um, are best supported by a different, although overlapping, set of skills, practices, tools, environment and structures. Not knowing which type of data science your organization needs uh, might lead you to not setting up your data science team up with the best capabilities to deliver value from your data. It might lead to very skilled individuals being hired to do work that doesn't match their skill set or interest. It might lead to the organization not being able to confidently use the insights. It might lead to friction in the processes due to the lack of appropriate data tools and practices. And finally, it might just lead to your data science team not delivering as much value as they have potential to deliver. So please think about where on the analysis build spectrum the data science unit falls on and don't let your data science team down. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. I'll come to the room again for the first question in a moment, but just a reminder, if you're watching us online, you know what I'm going to say. You can put questions to Alex via Slido, which is bit.ly slash slidodb34 if you're not already there. Who in the room would like to ask the first question? Plenty to dig into there. Hi, Alex. We can now see you on the screen. Very good to see you. Hello. Um, we've got one from one of the pools here at the front. 
Thanks, Alex. That was great. Um, um, I really like the distinction, and it feels like sometimes in our uh, government world, the sort of policy and political bit as the bit with all the, the power and the glory, but sometimes I think in data science, all the, the value sits in those operational models in production in the way you say. Um, how does it feel from within the system? Is that changing? Are you seeing more of the uh, value being seen internally um, in that B model rather than just the A model? It just feels like data science gives us so much more than just dashboards. Yeah, definitely. So I think um, what I see is that um, previously we've had a lot more capability. So the capability within the departments was set up to deliver the A-type analysis because that's where we came from. So we had really strong analytical communities that already had the tools to do analysis and produce dashboards. And we were really skilled in disseminating and presenting that data to people. And so we were really set up in that way. Um, and then machine learning and AI came about as, as buzzwords and, and everyone sort of recognized that we want to do it. But not everyone recognizes that it does require a different environment and a different set of practices and a different um, setup as an organization. And so what I do often see is people sort of jumping to the conclusion that, yeah, we need to do that embedded analytics. We need to deploy machine learning um, uh, models into the services. Um, but then they're asking their an analyst type data science teams to do that. And they just they, they just really struggle because the organization isn't set up in that way. So as much as I can see a lot of appetite for um, you know, delivering those B times B type data science uh, models, um, there often isn't enough work put into setting up the foundations to be able to deliver um, those as efficiently as we do for analysis. Great, thank you. I'm going to go online for the next question, and that's one from Sam from Med Confidential. Uh, he asks, "Can you say a little more about your robust data ethics framework for using health information?" Yep. So um, essentially, we are trying to um, develop a, an ethics framework, not just on our own, but also collaborating with all the other experts within our own department and across government. So that's mostly managed by our um, chief data office. But um, it also um, sort of relies on having a strong community of um, data professionals, so not just data scientists, not just builders or analysts, but all data professionals that, that sort of handle, transform, create, store data to sort of um, really come together and, and and create those ethics frameworks and, and we don't want to duplicate any effort we don't want to sort of create our own thing that only lives within the health transformation program we really want to sort of um, develop an ethics framework that works for the entire community excellent thank you i'll come back into the room for the next one uh, hands up if you'd like to ask a question go on somebody must want to Uh, I've got one, Alex, actually. Um, I mentioned earlier that you spoke at, I think, Databytes 2 back in May 2019. Um, what's changed the most since you spoke back then? Um, so from my personal position, um, our team has moved and um, started working on uh, in a different setup where we have had the chance to influence our stakeholders and our organization to put in place those capabilities, those foundations um, that allow us to sort of start thinking and developing those um, build data science models. Um, in terms of um, what's changed globally, well, obviously, we've had the pandemic. Well, as you said, we've had quite a few prime ministers and, and all of that has changed. Um, in terms of data science, um, yeah, I definitely see um, a lot of change in, in sort of 
the the embedded analytics, the sort of production level models being the new sexy term that's being banded around and the analysis data science sort of being forgotten. And so um, I think I would just like to sort of share some love for, for the analysis um, data science. Like it's still really important because without it, we're not going to be able to make like really good organizational um, decisions. We're not going to be able to design policy or even design the services that we then have to deploy models into. So I would just like to uh, sort of say, let's not, let's not forget the analysis part. It's also really, really important. Brilliant, thanks. Any questions in the room? We've got one at the back. Hi, Matt Kellogg, formerly a data scientist in, in government. Um, really interesting uh, talk, Alex, and sort of picks up on some of the things I sort of mentioned in my my uh, talk at last day bites. But I was really interested in the the two different types you've identified there of the analytical and the sort of service delivery type data science. And I was wondering how much interchange there is between those two. You just sort of mentioned about sort of sharing back some of the love with the, the analytical teams, but there's obviously partly because of the way that you're delivering services, you're always sort of seeing the new and the, the latest sort of developments. How much is there sort of an interchange of ideas and uh, between both sort of types of, of, of data scientists? Oh, tons, and like it—it should—it should really not be seen as a sort of two separate jobs because um, the skill sets, as, as much as people can lean on one side of the spectrum or another, you know, doing analysis type data science doesn't mean that you um, don't have to think about hosting your services somewhere. So, for example, if you're developing a dashboard that Catherine spoke about, like yeah, you need to think about hosting. You need to think about think about how up to date your data is, how how robust your pipelines are, and and all of that just because you're developing in an inside um, uh, an output meant for humans doesn't mean that you have to don't have to think about that and so the, the overlap is huge on the other side as well just because you're um, de deploying um, information back into the service doesn't mean that you can't do rigorous statistical testing for example or statistical models or analysis or, or robust research um, so both skill sets and everything can overlap and um, you know as you sort of tighten those feedback loops between um, creating some data that then influences some decision um, about the service or within the service, those sort of needs for your environments, your capabilities, your foundations, they start to overlap. Um, and so there's definitely um, blended models. And as I said, my team as well delivers both types. And so um, I don't identify myself as either an A type or a B type um, data scientist because I do both and, and everyone in my team does both and they do both together. Um, and so hopefully, the overlap is is really really huge and it will continue to be huge brilliant thank you uh, we've got a question from anonymous online which is how does your team work alongside designers in the service um, that's a really good question um, and I think this has got tons to do with culture within the organization and um, within how you position the data and the data team within the organization and how it's seen and so definitely if you're working in that setup when you've got a central data team tucked away somewhere in a data directorate um, then you know you're sitting really far away from the people who are designing the service and so it's really hard to influence them and if you if it's really hard for you to influence them then you've got very little influence on you know what what data is collected and how it's how it's collected within the service and so the data that ultimately reaches you to analyze um, might not be the best for analysis well if you sort of position yourself really closely to those teams embed yourselves in those teams work in the same um, agile for example practices as they do uh, speak the same language you know I turn up to user research sessions and I turn up to co-design sessions because I want to be really embedded in that so whole sort of process of designing and building a service um, and that really helps sort 
of designers to not only see that, you know, I'm willing to sort of go and, and design with them, but also to sort of get interested about what I do. And, and it helps us develop that shared language, that shared understanding so that they can then take lessons away about, you know, how do we better collect data? How do we better store it, transform it, move it about um, to then sort of help that analysis and that build data science to happen because it's beneficial for everyone. Excellent. Alex, it's been great to hear from you uh, for a second time at Databytes. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. A few quick parish notices before I let those of you at the IFG onto the landing for drinks and nibbles. Um, obviously, there's a lot happening in politics at the moment. Uh, do keep an eye on the IFG website for all of that. Um, the next Data Bytes will be on Tuesday, not our usual Wednesday, Tuesday, the 1st of November. So please do come along then for more brilliant speakers. Um, there are lots of events coming up on the IFG website. There are also lots of events that we've just done at party conferences, Labour and Conservative. Um, quite a few of those are about digital and data. In fact, James Plunkett, who I think was mentioned earlier, was uh, speaking at one of those about what government should uh, do in terms of regulation in the digital age. So 29 events, uh, and there's audio to catch up on um, from all of those. Also some in-person events and digital events here at the in the building, whether the Home Office is fit for purpose, a blockbuster panel on reforming public appointments, and one that you might be interested in if you came to this. First week of November, we've got an in-conversation event with the Information Commissioner. Uh, all that remains for me to say, though, a um, couple of thank yous. First of all, to our wonderful audience online and here in the building. Some fantastic questions this evening. And finally, please do join me in a huge round of applause for our fantastic speakers. Thank you very much indeed.